From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. back to Terra Informa. I'm Ben Penner, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week, we are going to dive into a story on the changes to federal environmental laws in Canada with the Executive Director of Environmental Law Centre, Jason Unger. This week's story will give us legal insights into the implication of these recent changes. That's all coming up on Terra Informa, but first, here are some environmental headlines. Cape Town, South Africa is currently facing a massive water crisis, with projections showing water supply will be cut off as early as this April. The plan to assist with the water shortage, however, could lead to ecological damage and species loss. City officials have planned to drill aquifers into a mountainous region of East Cape Town, potentially providing 40 million litres of water a day. Unfortunately, ecologists say the drilling would threaten unique biodiversity of the Cape Floral Region, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. After informing the city of the impacts of biodiversity loss in this region, officials said they were aware of the concern. No changes have been made to the drilling plan thus far. Things are not looking up for the Atlantic right whale. The extremely endangered sea creature saw only five whales born in 2017 and has seen no new offspring born in 2018 so far. Dr. Mayo, director of the right whale ecology program, discussed the hope that the whales may have relocated to do their breeding and that some newborn will be discovered later in the season. This is due to the shifting oceanic conditions and has already been seen in the right whale population when they were spotted in the Gulf of the St. Lawrence. To hear more about the devastating right whale decline, check out our website, terrainforma.ca, and search right whale. Terra Informer Caitlin McNabb sat down with Jason Unger to discuss the changes to the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act, the Fisheries Act, the Navigable Waters Act, and the National Energy Board Act. If you want to understand if these changes spell out greater transparency, public participation, and environmental protection, listen in as Jason helps us to understand what the changes really mean for Canada's environment. My name is Jason Unger and I'm the Executive Director of the Environmental Law Centre based here in Edmonton. It's a non-profit organization that started in 1982 and a charitable organization as well. Our main goal is to see our laws and policies protect the environment for future Albertans and future generations of Albertans for sure. Our work kind of focuses on two main areas. One is outreach and education and one is law reform. So seeking changes to laws and, and new laws to affect our mission. 
Thank you. So at the start of February, um, the federal Canadian government changed some of their environmental legislation. The acts that they changed um, were the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act, the Fisheries Act, the Navigable Waters Act, and the National Energy Board Act. Can you give us some insight into the legal frameworks that existed before the new changes and what these acts focused on? Sure. So there's been two bills put forth for Parliament to consider, Bill 68, which is the Fisheries Act, and Bill 69, which deals with the other three acts that you mentioned. Basically, the history of these pieces of legislation are quite interesting as they've evolved through time. Many of them have been around for a long time, like the Fisheries Act and the Navigable Waters Act, which is the name of that has changed quite a few times, um, as well as the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act, which was originally came into place uh, in the early 90s and then was subsequently significantly changed in 2012 when it was repealed and replaced by what's called the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act 2012 or CIA 2012 for, for short. A lot of these changes that are being placed uh, in these bills now are a result of the federal government committing to review these pieces of legislation in, in their uh, platform originally and saying that they would look and review and perhaps put in place the old protections that were removed in 2012. So in 2012, there was a, a couple of omnibus bills uh, whereby a lot of these uh, environmental pieces of legislation were reviewed and changed significantly. Do we know why the Harper government decided to change some of the laws in 2012? We know that at least the the effect was to somewhat narrow the application of the legislation. So it was really, I think, one can assume or imply in reading them that they really narrowed uh, the focus of the legislation to say we're only going to deal with clear areas of federal jurisdiction and narrowly construe that. So we're not going to really take an ecological perspective on some of these issues, uh, specifically around fisheries. Uh, and the Environmental Assessment Act also was changed to really focus on a list of projects in the regulations that they would assess and ignore some of the other impacts that, that could be regulated federally, but they chose not to. The impacts that they ignored, um, do you think that's why the new government wanted to um, introduce this legislation? As, as you were saying, it was also part of their platform too? Right. It was part of their platform to review it and say they were going to bring back some of the protections, which they have on some parts, but not on others. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that in that regard is that they've partially met that mandate in, in for instance, the Fisheries Act, where they reverted back to some important protections there. Uh, the Navigable Waters Act, however, is seeing less change for, for the benefit of what would can be considered protection of, of environmental aspects of navigable waters. So for the new acts, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Impact Assessment Act. Do you see this change as one of the most important changes of the new federal environmental law? It is an important change. I think the the framing of it has changed from what used to be determining whether a project or an undertaking had a a significant adverse environmental effect. And now in changing it to an impact assessment, they're looking at environmental, social, economic, and health impacts on a broader scale. And and there are provisions in there as well that that says basically they have to determine whether a project will contribute to sustainability, which is, I think, a a broadening and a more uh, 
holistic view of, of some of the project's impacts. So it's in the law that it has to contribute to sustainability? It's in the law that it has to consider that. It's not in the law that it has to contribute to sustainability. Oh, okay. <laughs> so so as, as part of the process, the agency who's responsible for the assessment, uh, that's just one of a long list of considerations that they would take into account. Uh, similarly, when the minister or the, the cabinet is, makes the ultimate decision on a, a, on a specific project, they would also uh, consider whether it contributes to st- sustainability. So are those more guidelines or are those like they legally have to follow what the decisions are based on? Because I also saw that decisions would be based on robust science, evidence, and indigenous traditional knowledge. And do you think that somebody could challenge if they decided to approve a project um, and they hadn't considered these? Do you think someone could challenge that? Well, it's very difficult to challenge uh, to go to court over a minister's or cabinet's decision in in that way. I, I would say challenging it is really difficult. Uh, the language in the act, as it's currently stated, is is basically a consideration of those factors. So you can, I mean, consideration is one thing. Mm-hmm. How, whether or not you're valuing those different factors adequately, is another thing altogether. Okay. And really, it's it's it, from my perspective, it has to do with whether a given decision is testable against those factors or testable in, in a court of law or or in any appeal mechanism, which doesn't exist for the ultimate decision. So I also have seen that the Impact Assessment Act is being framed as the previous government, public trust was eroded, and now this is our way to instill the public trust. How do you think that this new legislation involves new ways for public participation or standing? Is it standing that... Right. That was restrictive before. Right. So the, the the ability to appear before a project and kind of test the evidence and give evidence was limited in 2012. That's now been reversed so that it's basically public participation more broadly. So that's a, a good increase in, in you don't have to establish that you're directly impacted or have a specific interest in in, in that given project. So that's a, a good expansion. Uh, there's not a lot of clarity in the act itself about what public participation is going to look like, especially uh, the assessment act does bring in uh, early planning and a planning phase of assessment. Uh, and it's really unclear what role the public would have there. So, so the potentially space for the public to be involved in the planning in forms of, in terms of yes. consultation of some form? Yes, there is. So there's this idea that a proponent would come to the agency with a a project description and then they would have some time to assess that and do outreach to the public on that. Um, And then it would be determined after that whether a full uh, impact assessment would be required and and that would proceed from there. There are touch points for public participation along the way, uh, but the details are not there. And I think there's a lot of questions about how the timelines might interact with public participation, particularly where certain aspects of public participation can take quite a bit of time, especially if you're using different tools to be more collaborative or or kind of consulting with Indigenous peoples too. That was one of the things I heard about the Impact Assessment Act is that there will be shorter timelines for projects. Um, So will that 
shorten also the timeline for people to be involved to comment or give their input? It, it could. It depends on the circumstances of the case. And there are powers within the Act to extend the timelines. But generally, the timelines are, for the initial phase, 180 days. Um, and then the proponent has up to three years to provide information related to all the information the agency wants for the assessment. And then the assessment agency then has 300 days to make a determination on that, to make some conclusions, and then they refer it to the minister or, or cabinet. For a review panel, which is another process that it could go through, that's 600 days. So it really depends on the scenario, whether that's sufficient time for pro- participation or Does not. Does the new act change the review panel process? Or is that remain the same? Could you tell the, us a little bit about what sure. that is? So review panels are basically uh, the the agency, through the process of assessing a project, uh, will determine whether a project can just go through a, a normal assessment, which it would conduct, or through a review panel. Uh, a review panel is basically a, typically a, a, a board of three panelists. Uh, who then consider all the assessment information, take in evidence from the public and and that type of thing. Uh, That also takes place for things under the National Energy Board currently, Uh, although for that currently it's done by the National Energy Board. Similarly for the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, that's done currently by that agency. So under the new Act, those agencies would have at least one seat on a review panel, uh, but they wouldn't they wouldn't be running the process uh, under this new system. So that I think that was part of the steps taken to to address some uh, perceptions of public trust or lack of public trust uh, in some of the processes around such things as pipelines, which we know are very contentious right now. They said they're creating a single agency, the Impact Assessment Agency. Is will this function the same way that like the Alberta Energy Regulator functions in Alberta or? The roles are quite different, okay. but it is a single assessment agency for the projects that are described on the regulation. So it will be a one agency process, mm-hmm. um, whereas now it depends what type of project you have. Uh, sometimes it's with the agency, sometimes with the NEV, sometimes with the CNSC as we the just nuclear? discussed. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, that, that makes sense. Yeah. So is that a positive thing? Does the Environmental Law Centre see the single impact assessment agency as a positive step or yes. does it have problems with it? No, I think it's a positive step uh, insofar as it can uh, kind of do its job uh, independent of, of some of the other influences. Uh, a lot of the discussion around some of the problems is that when you're both the regulator and the assessment agency, you're kind of doing two jobs that are interrelated. And really, there's a le- level of independence needed on the assessment side of things. So having an independent agency or an independent tribunal making the decisions, even here, now it's referred to minister or cabinet, which I, I think doesn't necessarily get over the public trust issue, but the agency doing it at least has a step forward on that in that regard. So previously it would would have been like the National Energy Board and they would be considered the regulator and the assessor you said? That's right. So where does the National Energy Board fit into this? Because I know that they have now introduced the Canadian Energy Regulator Act, (laughs) I think is the new one. So what is the changes with that? There aren't too many changes to that act. Is Uh, it just a name? 
primarily <laughs> it is the name. There are some changes. Uh, primarily it is the name, though. Uh, they, as we mentioned, the assessment process is different for described projects. So the the project list, once it's confirmed, uh, those projects will then go to the agency. Um, those projects not on on the list will be still regulated and assessed through the the Canadian Energy Regulator process, and they do provide some additional considerations in the Canadian Energy Regulator Act in terms of how they make decisions. So there are some expansion of conditions around around that act as well. So one of the criticisms that McKenna faced in an interview that I watched was that the in situ oil and gas projects aren't considered on the project list for Alberta because we have a hard cap on emissions. So they said that because we have a plan, Alberta has a plan to deal with their emissions, um, it's not going to be counted for the federal environmental impact assessments. What does what do you think about that? <laughs> That's a uh, interesting point for sure, and I, I think it, well, time will tell, especially related to greenhouse gas emissions, whether projects will make their way onto the project list because of things like, as you've mentioned, the the provincial climate change plan and what they're doing there. I think really that should be secondary consideration, if not off the books, uh, not really a major consideration because. We should be looking at, at the impacts of every project, notwithstanding the regulatory system they're operating under or the policy scheme they're operating under. A lot of environmental impacts are cumulative effects problems that we're facing. And so to just kind of give a pass to certain things uh, is not going to get us towards where we need to be. Is there any of the other important aspects of the changes to the acts that we haven't touched on here? I know there's so the, the <laughs> legislations are so broad and right. the changes are complicated and hard to understand. But well, I think generally, the most important parts. Right. I, I think when we look at legislation at the Environmental Law Center, we're always looking for certain things like transparency, um, like accountability to environmental outcomes, uh, protection and precaution certain principles that guide our views of what it what makes a good environmental law. In many aspects, some of these things are, are moving forward. So in the Fisheries Act, we're seeing better protections coming back into play, higher transparency with, with the registry being constructed around permits and authorizations under the Fisheries Act, which is valuable. There's increased transparency around the registry as well under the Impact Assessment Act. Less clear on the accountability part uh, in terms of the Impact Assessment Act. The Navigable Waters Act, I think, is is almost not much different from what it was when it changed in 2012. So that is, it remains to be seen how it's going to be administered. Okay. Uh, basically, there, what we had prior to 2012 was more comprehensive than what we have now. I was interested a little bit in the the fisheries habitat bank. So is that similar to the idea of carbon offsets? There would be like a fish offsets where you do harm to fish over here, but you restore a fish population in another area? That is the idea. Uh, And there's a lot of details that have yet to be known. But yes, so basically, historically, there has been this premise that there would be no net loss of habitat for fish. that has evolved through time. Uh, and now in this new Fisheries Act, they have habitat banking and a credit system whereby if you're going to harm or destroy fish habitat, the notion is that you'd 
you would then get credit for restoring or going to this habitat bank and pulling out credits from there. So there's a lot of issues with uh, that type of offset system and, and habitat banking and, and that type of thing because you don't necessarily know right. for sure that you're going to get that replacement value so from that, an ecological perspective. Yeah. Right? So that idea was just first introduced now or has this existed in the past in law at all? It, it was more in terms of policy uh, and it, th there were some struggles previously in terms of how they administered it through the approvals and permits because it wasn't really suited for that purpose. Uh, and so when they went back and determined whether a specific restoration or habitat compensation process occurred, they wouldn't necessarily have any enforcement power or that type of thing in terms of ensuring those those restoration or creation of habitat processes were effective. So I think this is a step forward, but there, as I said, there's a lot of, it raises a lot of flags because it, it requires a lot of oversight to know whether or not these banks and these offset credits are being effective or not. Right. Yeah. It seems a little bit of a strange idea to think, okay, well, we'll destroy the ecology over here, but the ecology in another place is okay, so that makes up for it. So has right. it existed before, or is, is this just the first introduction of this idea of the banking system? It's the first legislative structure, I would mm -hmm. say, setting up the bank itself and, and identifying how credits might be used. Huh. Interesting. So I read in on your blog about the Impact Assessment Act that um, there's criticism over the ministerial discretion for the Impact Assessment Act. Um, could you speak more about that? Sure. I think really what the focus of, of that criticism is that we have an agency that conducts the assessment and it draws some certain conclusions and recommendations. That information then feeds into what is basically a political process. So there are factors in the new Impact Assessment Act which say that the minister will consider these things and then the reason should reflect those considerations around sustainability, around impacts on Indigenous people's rights uh, and other things and climate change. So the difficulty is, though, is because it's a consideration, it's highly discretionary. It's, it's all, and I mentioned it in the blog, it's kind of the notion that whenever somebody says, oh, we need to balance all these things without having a reference case of what balance looks like, it's really difficult to, to tell how we're balancing those things. I noticed that they were talking about um, the recognition of Indigenous rights. Um, and I was wondering how are they going to recognize Indigenous rights in a new way for the Impact Assessment Act? That's a great question. I think in all the acts, uh, they recognize that there needs to be more recognition and more linkages with impacts on, on Indigenous rights. Uh, and under Section 35 of the Constitution, uh, there's certainly those obligations exist already. I think it remains to be seen how it evolves, though. Uh, the federal government has recently come out with a new f idea of a framework they're going to be producing for engagement. Uh, and there's been evolution of commitments to the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which don't appear in any of the acts. So there's a lot of discussion on one side and and what's happened in the legislation is primarily just reiterating the commitment and, and embedding it in more aspects or more provisions, which is important, I think, but it's only one step. And it certainly doesn't 
get to this notion of, of kind of the nation-to-nation uh, discussion that's been proposed. And so I had one kind of final question. They talked a little bit about their contributions, broadening contributions to sustainability and the effect of projects on commitments in respect to climate change. So would this would this refer to the Paris Agreement? And then I was also wondering how they would legally legally measure the commitments in respect to climate change, if this would just be a number for like emissions or if it would count like the energy that goes into constructing something or yeah like how detailed do you think that they will go with that that's an excellent question i i don't think i think how it's framed it's clear it's not necessarily it's well it's not necessarily that clear in terms of what commitments they're talking about but they have committed to do a strategic assessment of of climate change in in canada so what that looks like and how that translates into project review um, often they only look at kind of upstream emissions. So how how you look at emissions is certainly an ongoing <laughs> discussion and how they are going to decide how they assess what's in and what's out of the project list, I think, has yet to be determined. Mm-hmm. So those are the things they're going to have to consider when they're making uh, regulations around that. Uh, certainly considerations about their, their commitments on that file will will have to be front and center, but I would, wouldn't even warrant a guess. Well, thank you. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add in terms of helping us understand the importance of these changes to federal environmental law? Sure. I think, uh, like many of these pieces of legislation, they're they're very enabling, they're very discretionary. So a lot of answers about their effectiveness are only going to play out over time. Uh, it requires a lot of resources to be put in place for for the departments to actually administer these pieces of legislation effectively and to really monitor and track and be comprehensive in how they approach these issues. So I think there's some good steps. There's probably some missteps that hopefully can be changed in amendments. Uh, but I think there's an opportunity here for, for moving for, moving the ball forward in terms of environmental protection more broadly. Well, thank you, Jason, for coming in and sharing a little bit about your knowledge for us to better understand these changes. Well, thanks for having me. was Caitlin McNabb interviewing Jason Unger on environmental law in Canada. If you want to hear even more stories like these, check out our website in terrainforma.ca. And while you're there, look for the survey tab in the menu. If you want to hear even more stories like that, check out our website at terrainforma.ca. And while you're there, look for the survey tab in the menu. We would love to get to know you, our listeners, and what you enjoy about the show. Your input can influence the content we gather over the next year. Also, upon completing the survey, you can enter a draw for a chance to win the opportunity to host Terra Informa, like we are right now with us in Edmonton. If you're from another city, no problem. You can still co-host from afar. Speaking of co-hosting, have you ever wanted to be on the radio? Terra Informa is recruiting. If you want to join our team and share your stories, check out the About Us tab on terrainforma.ca. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. 
Terra Informa is a production of CGSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. If you have questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cgsr.com or tweet it at Terra And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. Thanks this week to our contributors, Charlotte Thompson, Caitlin McNabb, Amanda Rooney, and Hannah Cunningham. I've been your host, Ben Penner. Catch you next week.